a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And Michelle, we have a very special guest with us today. We've got Amy.Harmer on the line. Amy, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. Oh, thank you so much. We're excited to talk with you. You work with the Utah Refugee Connection. This is a conversation different than a lot of the ones we've had, and yet I can't think of a a conversation that would need to involve resilience maybe more than this one. Absolutely. I'm so excited to get to to learn. Yeah. I'm so excited to get to know you, Amy. I want to know about you, the person behind (laughs) this whole thing. Tell us about you. So, you know, I'm one of those um, people that never thought in my 50s, I'd be doing what I'm doing now. And I think, you know, as we go along in life, we find these different avenues and possibilities that are available to us. And as we explore them, we usually have come into our heart and mind the thing that's right for us. And eight years ago, I started as a volunteer at Utah Refugee Connection. And I helped with a holiday event that was probably about two miles from where I grew up as a youngster in Salt Lake. And I was blown away watching all of these refugees from different backgrounds show up for this holiday event. And I just was like, where did all of these people come from? I had no idea how many refugees were in Utah and how close to home this really hit for me. And so that was kind of the beginning of where I'm at now, I discovered that there was an incredible need and an incredible capacity for our community to make a difference. So I started out as a volunteer. And then over time, I ended up being asked to come in and help with social media, especially when the LDS Church had some general conference talks about, you know, that We're all more connected and encouraging members of the LDS faith to be get involved with refugee work. And so I was asked to help a little bit with social media. I had been working for a blogger and knew the incredible capacity of social media to engage people. And I looked forward to connecting people in meaningful ways via social media to help refugees. And then a couple of months later, the executive director left, and I was probably clued in the most about what was going on. And the board asked me to step in temporarily until they figured out what to do. And 
here I am seven years. That's later. pretty temporary. Oh, I love it. On a, I was on a steep learning curve and continued to learn. You know, I never thought I'd be running a nonprofit and having such intimate exposure to refugees in our own community and also seeing the incredible capacity of people in Utah and other places reach out to make a difference in the lives of some of the most unlucky and vulnerable among us. So that's kind of how I got started. I love that. So tell me, what was your background in social media? Was that something you were just kind of naturally good at? Had you had some training and professional background? So my background actually is education. I taught elementary school for several years. I started my family and didn't keep teaching, but always did some artwork on the side. I mastered, believe it or not, stick figures. Um, When I say I mastered stick figures, I really mean it because I worked for many years doing clip art and rubber stamps and stationery using simple stick figures and did artwork. I bet your stick figures look better than my stick figures. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you made a beautiful stick figure. Yes, I did. I I was known in my previous life as someone that drew stick figures and that evolved to designing charms and like I said, clip art and fabric for a company. And through the years, I just have always had a little bit of artwork on the side. And then I had a stillborn baby and I had been designing fabric mostly for baby blankets. And I discovered that they wanted me to come back and do more artwork, but that just didn't feel like the right place to me at that time. Um, It was a little hard to recover after that experience. And I had a, a blogger friend that needed some extra help and had posted something on her social media. And I was like, oh, I would love to try that and just help her. And it was a really meaningful experience because it helped me realize the capacity of social media to be used to do so much. And I kept thinking, man, this is a pretty amazing platform to be able to share information and engage people. But what if we used it for something else, you know, and after several, well, maybe two years is when I started kind of exploring some different opportunities and volunteered for Utah Refugee Connection and things just kind of fell into place. So, but I feel like there were lots of experiences and I'm sure both of you have have, have, have sensed this or felt this in your own life where you have experiences that at the time maybe don't really make a whole lot of sense, but Mm -hmm. then down the road, like the amalgamation of all your life experiences come together to enable you to do something you never thought you could do. Yeah. Isn't it funny how life works? (laughs) We're just looking at each other laughing. I love that your stick art and rubber stamps has led you now to working with like you said, some of the most vulnerable among us. Um, that's a beautiful. Yeah. That's a beautiful background and a beautiful story where um, it wasn't necessarily something you set out to do. I applaud you for being open to new opportunities a little later in life. Sometimes I think in our culture we kind of drill it into our high school kids that they got to go to college and then out of college they got to pick a career and then they got to pick a career and stay with the career. When 
in reality, life is long and beautiful and full of yeah. chances to take a different turn. Yeah, and interesting yeah, well, enough, eight yeah. percent of people that go into college only eight. I think it's eight percent actually work in that field. Work in the field. So yeah. it, you know, yeah. I think that oftentimes we start a path, but it's not ours, and so we experience and, and experiment. And you know it because you feel it. Right. And you've said that a couple well, different and, times. And, and I, I want to point out was, too that frequently you start down a path and you go, "Oh, that's not the right one." Yeah, and you know you. I, I think sometimes people think magically the right path opens up to you. And I think that's, that's deceiving because there were lots of little path I, mm-hmm. paths I started down that seemed to dead end. And at the time I was really disappointed that they didn't go where I thought they were going to do or didn't do exactly what I thought they were going to do. But then I realized, oh, it was really so I could do what I'm doing now. Mm. Right. That's beautiful. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So cool. So I, I think that's important to know. But the experiences in my life before doing what I'm doing now were really helpful. I taught school and um, I spent a year in Murray School District. And I think at that time, well, one year, one of my years in Murray School District, I had eight kids that spoke English as a second language and none of them spoke the same language. Oh, so my eight goodness. different kids. And I remember at the time just going, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do this from the teacher side of it? Right. But then I also thought about what is it like for these kids yeah. to come from Russia or, you know, from Central America or these different places and have to start brand new as a young kid and the anxiety that provokes. So that teaching experience, though short, was invaluable to helping me better understand how to relate to some of these kids well, maybe and how important. Like a little mm-hmm. foreshadowery in your life. Like you said, sometimes oh, things happen sure. where we don't we don't maybe recognize the significance of it at the time, but a year mm-hmm. or a decade later we think, oh well that actually really helped train yeah. me or prepare and, me or open my eyes to something that I could never have imagined coming down the road. Sure. Well, and I laugh because when I was in college, I was heavily involved with large scale service projects at the University of Utah. And I loved it. I loved getting students engaged. I loved collaborating with the Bunyan Center. I loved collaborating with businesses. And I actually joked at the time, I was like, man, if I could have my dream job, it would be to engage companies and people in the community wow. with meaningful acts of service. And I'm kind of laughing about it because now 30 years later, Isn't that, that's what I'm doing. But how beautiful yeah. is that? It's like something within you knew that yeah. that was a, a path for you that mm-hmm. the, the ups and downs of the path in between got you there. Um, I'm curious, back to that Murray School classroom was uh-huh. that diversity in your classroom typical for the school you were in? And was that diversity for your school typical for the district? You know, it was typical. It was at um, Parkside Elementary. And that, that school is still a school that has quite a bit of diversity. It's changed a lot through the years. Um, at the time, there were a lot of trailer parks. And there was a lot of transient housing. And by that, I mean lots of apartments where, you know, 25% of the kids wouldn't stay there longer than a year. 
Okay. And, you know, I, I also had an experience there where one of my third grade students had been raped the summer before. Oh. And so I just was like kind of blown away as a new teacher at all of the things that were coming at these kids and the challenges that I didn't face as a child like they had. And so um, it, it really helped me have a little bit more empathy to what some of these refugee families have been through and what they've experienced coming here. So, you know, um, Murray School School District, I love because it's small. They can make decisions because the district is so small. And they they do some remarkable things, but they also have challenges. You know, they have some of these challenges of families that there's intergenerational poverty, there's diversity, just like other districts. But it really did open my eyes and it was fun. I actually went back to one of the schools that I taught at um, this last year for a project we worked on. And I went back into my classroom and it brought back so many memories mm. of these experiences Where it all and helped me relate. Yeah. Where yeah, it all began. Yeah. Oh, that's oh. so amazing. We're going to yeah. need to take a quick break, um, but I want to come back and discuss How do the refugees end up in Utah? Okay, I'm happy to share. Okay, sounds good. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Amy, how does our refugee population grow? These people are leaving their countries for a lot of different reasons, political issues, uh, safety concerns. How does the how do these families end up in our state? That is such a good question, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about um, first of all what what qualifies someone for a refugee versus someone that's an immigrant versus someone that's seeking asylum and. We frequently use the phrase refugee when we really mean displaced people. The UNHCR is the worldwide organization that determines who technically is a refugee. And a refugee is someone who can no longer remain in their state because their life is on the line, whether it's because of their ethnicity or their governmental association A refugee is someone who there is no way that they can live in their country of origin without a severe risk to their life. And when refugees discover they're in that situation, they usually flee to a secondary country. And those countries are usually the country closest to them that is stable. And they apply for refugee status with UNHCR, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And believe it or not, that paperwork 
is very extensive and can take years to be processed. So a lot of people think, oh, a refugee, you know, they're temporarily in a refugee camp. And then after maybe two or three weeks or maybe a month, they come to the United States. Well, it's much more intensive than that in that these organizations want to really document that these individuals are fleeing for their lives and there's no way they can remain where they are. And then there are many countries that agree to take in refugees. The United States is one of many. And um, then once these refugees are identified, the U.S. every year decides how many we will let in, and that's determined by the president. And the president sets a certain amount of numbers that are allowed to come to the United States. And then um, in the United States, we have all these different organizations that agree to resettle refugees. And so the numbers have really changed through the years. During the Obama administration, we had about 125,000 refugees coming in. And then during the Trump administration, we had about 14,000. And then with Biden, the numbers are going up gradually, but it's it changes significantly. And so the interesting things I like to point out with refugee resettlement is, number one, only 1% of the refugees in refugee camps throughout the world will ever be resettled in a safe secondary country. Oh, my goodness. That's devastating. That's devastating. That means means one in a hundred will have the very fortunate opportunity to go to a secondary country to begin a life again. And to me, that's an amazing loss of human potential. I wonder of those, you know, 99 out of 100 who... Who isn't going to school that could possibly help us understand can- cancer better, or who in that refugee camp and camp doesn't necessarily have the opportunities to become who they're divinely meant to be? And to me, it's a tragic loss of human potential. The other thing I like to point out is, you know, we think we take a lot of refugees as the United States, but really, we're not even in the top secondary countries for refugees for resettlement, which to me is a little bit sad because we're the most prosperous, amazing place for opportunity, but yet we feel that it's difficult for us to absorb these people that are some of the most unlucky people I know just because of where they were born. And then, like I said, it takes a huge process to vet these refugees to determine if they can come to the United States. So first there's the initial, do they qualify under UNHCR? And then there are more rigorous checkpoints to determine if these different individuals are safe to come to the United States. And that takes an amazing amount of time as well. And so when they get here, it's like winning the lottery in a lot of ways because Creativity, ingenuity, intelligence, all of those things are universal, but opportunities are not. And so all of a sudden they get here and these opportunities open up, but first they've got to get their feet on the ground. So, you know, it's overwhelming for most individuals that come as refugees. They know how fortunate they are, but it is so hard 
to begin a new life, especially in some of these refugee camps. They haven't had to pay rent. They've been dependent on nonprofits and NGOs. They've not had the opportunity to have rigorous schooling. And now they're having to figure out how to work a thermostat and be in snow for the first time and how to get somewhere on the bus or there's just so many obstacles. So, you know, those are some of the things that are interesting to know. And then Utah, you know, refugees don't get to pick which country and place they go to. If they have family here, they can say, hey, we already have family in the United States and they're in Utah. Is that a place we could be considered to go? But they don't get a pick. They're just assigned. So if we were applying, we might be assigned to the Middle East or we might be assigned to Sweden. You know, like you just don't know where you will be assigned. And then, um, so that happens at the federal level before they're even uh-huh, assigned out to the uh-huh. states. They're just yeah. grouped in, and then yeah. they're like, "This pile goes Checked out." out. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of steps wow. that they go through, and then Utah has two resettlement agencies. One is the International Rescue Committee, and the other is Catholic Community Services, and they say what their capacity is to take on refugees, and then those refugees in the pipeline are assigned to them based on, you know, needs and based on who has space for them. And then those two organizations are in charge of setting up their apartments the first year and case managing them and helping them. And then there, we have an amazing network of refugee providers that assist in the ways that they can, whether it's teaching English or teaching job skills or helping victims of um, torture or helping vulnerable women. There's a huge network of providers that kind of offer support as these refugees make their way in Utah. So does that answer your question? It's kind of a long answer, but I don't think people realize, oh, they didn't just get on a plane and say, I think I want to go to Utah. There's a lot of steps they have to go to to get here. And it then, was very enlightening. I mean, we're just staring at each other with our eyes wide open. Yeah. Like it, it, the process itself is a little bit overwhelming. I have yeah. been under some misunderstandings. I figured that some of these refugees did have family here, and that's how they were able to come into our community mm-hmm. in the first place. And it's really eye-opening to realize these people are landing here with most likely not knowing anybody. Yeah, yeah. And being it's very thrown. overwhelming. I can't even imagine. And Utah, unfortunate or fortunate for them, it's a great state, but we have some really unique cultural differences yeah. that are not representative across the country. And so no. <laughs> so that's a whole other. I love that, yeah, we... we we lack some diversity, though I think Utah is becoming more diverse. We have a very predominant religion, mm-hmm. and we don't have an awareness of uh, other religions like other places might, because there is a predominant religion. Mm-hmm. Um, where we we have a lot of misunderstandings about Muslims, and a lot of refugees are Muslims, and um, I actually love my space because I have been exposed to so many beautiful things, but also Utah is pretty remarkable in its generosity of spirit. 
I mean, there are groups constantly doing projects to make a difference. We're pretty welcoming um, of diversity. I would Mm -hmm. have to say we're really good at inviting people to our stuff. We're maybe not quite as good at reciprocating. And so I always say, hey, you got to get out of your comfort zone. You can invite them to your church, but you better darn well go to theirs. Right, absolutely. You know, you can invite them over for dinner, but you better go to an iftar when when Muslims break fast during Ramadan, you know, or just encouraging people to to not just invite diversity into your life, but be reciprocative and ask, you know, when's your next holiday? Can I come go to something that is is important to you and your culture? And I have had some of the most beautiful experiences going to a Somali baby shower or learning about my Bhutanese friend's faith. And it's really expanded my um, idea of what it means to embrace humanity just because of the different religious and cultural backgrounds. I love it. Yeah, it's so amazing. (laughs) I I wish more people would kind of get out of their bubble because it really is beautiful. Yeah, it really is. My husband built the first Muslim temple in Davis County. Awesome. awesome. Yes. So um, he did that before his passing away and um, drive by it. And, and I appreciate the, the fact that my husband was able to be a part of something. And they're beautiful yeah. people and they're very willing to explain their religion and talk yeah. about the differences. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing is they know a lot about ours or at the time <laughs> it's very active. They can't, they, they, they yeah, can't help they, it, right? Um, they can't help it. Yeah. But it's also really beautiful. I have some relationships with different um, refugee friends of different faiths. And I say to them, hey, I want you to know that if you ever have questions about our culture or religion, I am an open book and there's nothing that you can ask me that's too embarrassing. And on the other side, they've offered that back to me. And, you know, as we're serving refugee women, there are things that I have learned about modesty, about um, feminine hygiene, about female genital mutilation, about cultural norms for them that if I hadn't been able to ask openly, I wouldn't have the skills to be able to know how to better meet their needs. And conversely, if refugees don't have a friend and mentor to help them navigate their their newness in this community, then it's going to be pretty hard for yeah. them to make it. Yeah. So I'm really grateful to be kind of, I offer myself as an open book for them to ask me questions and they conversely are allowing me to ask questions that sometimes are really personal. And I'm really grateful for that because it ex- expands my understanding, but also it helps me um, in my capacity as an executive director to better meet needs that are out there in the community. So, so you started with service at the Utah Refugee yeah. Center. What yeah. opportunities exist today? Do you need more volunteers? And if somebody listening to our show wants to come and support and learn how to volunteer for you, how do they start? 
How do they walk in the door so, and say, I'm, I'm available? Yeah. So, so I love that question. It's a great question because our role at Utah Refugee Connection is, um, has three areas of focus. One is to give people in the general community ways to learn about refugees. Um, you know, we have 65,000 refugees in Utah, and not many people know that, and they don't know much about the different cultures. And they're, they can't be grouped all together because they're from all different places and all different life experiences. So number one, to learn about local refugees. Our next goal is to wait, have ways to serve refugees in meaningful um, ways and then to give to local refugees in meaningful ways. And the avenues we use to help people learn, serve, and give are number one, our social media feeds. So for Utah Refugee Connection, our social media feeds are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under Serve Refugees. So if you search in an account, Serve Refugees, then our account comes up. And almost every day we post a way to learn about, serve, or give to local refugees. We know some people have ample time and would love to give time. So recently we just posted an opportunity to go and help with a monthly gathering of refugees that come together to dance. Dance is a big part of a lot of these cultures. And this next month, there's a focus on teenage refugees dancing, and they need people to come and bring snacks to make it a fun event and then also dance with them. Now, that may require some people to go out of their comfort zone, but we just posted, hey, do you want to come bring some snacks and dance with refugees? And then we also have I'm so excited about this. I'm part of, <laughs> um, I'm single now, and I've been learning how to dance. And I, a bunch of <laughs> I my, my girlfriends are learning how to dance, and we're taking dance lessons I think I could probably get some ladies together and go do this. And they can bring the snacks and then dance with them. It's uh, awesome. Just on a side note, Uh funny thing, we did a big Mother's Day event seven years ago with a bunch of different women in the community and some influencers, and we thought it was amazing. Like, we had giveaways, we had food. We had pictures, and we thought it was so great. And as the event was ending, we were asking the women, uh, we said, hi, you know, did you have a good time? And a couple of them were like, well, we're kind of disappointed. And, you know, they didn't say it exactly like that, but I was like, oh, and they're like, you didn't have any music, and we didn't have any dancing. And I was was kind of blown away because... Yeah, yeah. because I thought, well, it's all women. Why would they want to dance? Because usually when Americans get together, it's because there's women and men. And, yeah, but and uh, for them, us women all dancing, end up dancing together. It, anyway. wasn't, it wasn't a good party because there was no music and dancing. So I learned a really valuable le- lesson. Oh, I so, love this. So dancing was really critical. And then also on the learn component, we have quarterly cultural nights. Our last one was with the Somali community and we post about those on our social media feed and people can sign up to come. And the last one was really remarkable because we had a 10-year-old boy who was born here but grew up with refugee parents, share a little bit about their culture. And he was so nervous. I actually thought he was going to pass out. I mean, he was so nervous. 
So at the end, I got up and I said, hey, Musa, can you tell us a little bit more about you? How old are you? Um, and asked him a few questions, and he finally got a smile on his face. And, and then I said, you know, tell us about where you go to school. And he mentioned that he really hoped one day and dreamed of being a pilot. And it was really beautiful. And then later on in the um, cultural night, you know, with all these people learning about the Somalis, we had a man named Abdi who works at the refugee goat farm get up and tell a little bit about the goat farm and share a fable from their culture. And before he started, he he said, um, I know that many of you don't understand really well what we've been through, but when I was a kid every day, I would dream about having food the next morning or finding food throughout the day. And that was my biggest dream is to have my basic needs met. And he said, now I have my own kids and my biggest dream is that they can have dreams like Musa has of becoming something more. Because when I was his age, I didn't have the possibility to dream. And that statement still gets me. I mean, I still think, you know, they just want opportunities to dream like the rest of us. And they've overcome some pretty horrific things to be here. But those cultural nights are a great touch point to help people learn about, actually learn from refugees about their experience, what things are helpful, what things aren't helpful, how one culture, the Somali culture is different than, you know, the the Burundi culture And those are awesome. So that's another way to get engaged. And then we're constantly posting different needs. Like right now we're working on collecting Valentine kits. We're having a Valentine's Day event for refugee kids and teens. And that's a relatively new holiday for them. And so we want them to have Valentine kits. So we're constantly posting different needs. When we get close to back to school, we need backpacks with school supplies. Last year we gave out 5,000 So the social media feed is a wonderful way to, you know, find ways to be engaged. Like you may not have time to go to buy Valentine kits, but you can buy something off our registry for people that aren't on social media. You can go to serverefugees.org. And the cool thing about our website is the social media feed um, populates onto our page so you can actually see what we've posted from there without being oh, that's on great. social media. Because some people want so to stay away from there. those social media platforms. That's a great idea. You know, oh. and we're constantly I love posting that you, yeah, I love that you make it so available. Like you said, for some people, time is their greatest resource. For others, time might be their most limited commodity, in which case some sure, money might sure. help. And that sure, would be a great one. Sure. We will make sure we post that in our show notes so that people can find Every day, something they can do. I love that you say learn, serve, and give. We're going to take a quick break and then jump in. We're going to dig even a little deeper into what your service with Utah's refugee community has taught you about resilience. We'll be right back. All right, Amy, we've learned so much today. Michelle and I both just sit here with wide eyes and dropped jaws thinking, 
sometimes it's easy to grow up in a place or raise your family in a place and you're you're busy and you're distracted by your own concerns or your own struggles or just your own day-to-day and you might not be aware of what's happening in your own community. You mentioned it when you, when you first volunteered that not far from where you grew up you had no idea the the diversity, the difficulty, the struggles. Let's jump into what your work with the Utah refugee community has taught and continues to teach you about resilience. Oh, this is a, a really tender question for me because every day I have the opportunity to observe the resilience of some of the most unlucky, challenged people in the world. I have a, a beautiful friend named Paula who She's Congolese, but she was born in Botswana. And her story begins with her mother going into premature labor with her. And she had an older sister, five years older, and the dad and and the mother, when she went into labor, they took her to the, I, I mean, I don't, I think clinic is a stretch. I think hospital is a stretch, but they took her to a place in the refugee camp where many women would give birth, um, usually with maybe a, a midwife. And this um, Paula's mother was giving birth four months early. And, oh, no. you know, with no serious medical equipment, the mother ended up giving birth. And when the staff that was there helping realized how early this baby and how small this baby was, they threw threw this baby in the garbage. And when Paula tells this story, she talks about being reborn twice. She talks about her first birth was being taken out of the garbage by an amazing person who felt like she could save Paula. And then again, when she got to the United States, her story kind of is, to me, the, the amount of resilience that it takes. She begins her conversation or her talk usually by quoting Nelson Mandela, and I'm paraphrasing, but she says, after climbing a great hill, one only finds that there are many more hills yet to climb. And she talks about that beginning and then losing her mom after childbirth and having a single dad and a five-year-old sister in this refugee camp and how the dad struggled to make ends meet and how the mom before she died asked the five-year-old in her last words to take care of herself and her younger sister and that's all she knew of her mom. And then the dad working really hard to provide for this family and realizing that he wasn't making or getting enough food for the month from the the different organizations helping and then working hard to make some food that the girls could go out and sell so that they could barter for things that they needed and that they spent, you know, I think they spent at least eight years in the refugee camp and then finally were given permission to leave. And I met Paula when she was, you know, in her sophomore year, junior year at Olympus High. And I think most of the people that went to school with her had no idea of her background and that 
with the things that she had been through. And, you know, there are people working in the stores around us. There are people cleaning. There are the people selling us things that they're heroes. They've made it through horrific, difficult things. And she talks about how there were people along the path that seemed to give her hope that she had a greater purpose. And one of my favorite things is um, she called me, let's see, it's been a year and a half now to tell me that she had been one of the Utah Jazz Scholarship recipients. And she has second year at the U and she's thriving and doing really well. And she realizes that she made it through the first hill, but there's still more hills to climb. But with the support and help of other people and realizing that she has a specific destiny, she's becoming pretty remarkable (laughs) in her own right. And, And her story is not atypical for a lot of the refugees I know, but isn't that, isn't that the antithesis of resilience? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, being reborn twice, once when you're taken out of the garbage can in a refugee camp in Botswana, and then again, when you discover that you have potential here in the United States to become more of who you think you're really meant to be. To me, it's amazing to me. Well, and like the one man you quoted said, um, he now knew others could dream of dreams rather than just dreaming of having basic sustenance needs met. Yeah. That's such yeah. a foreign concept to us as we hem and haw over what we want to do with our time or our future because those basic needs are just almost automatically met for, for so many of us. So this has been very yeah, and like Sometimes I... our biggest thought is like, oh, I don't know what I want to make to dinner. Not because sure. you don't know what. There are the, too many choices. There's just too many choices. Hey, you've yeah. got choices. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's yeah. A, a, a quote that I share frequently um, from Michael Lewis that says, above all, recognize that if you've had success, you've also had luck. And with luck comes obligation. You owe a debt not only to your gods, you owe a debt to the unlucky. And uh, that, that's powerful. That's powerful. That, yeah. Yeah. Who's, send, who us that? send us that so we yes. can share it when we post this episode because yeah. both of us Michael were trying to Lewis, write it down and couldn't write fast yeah, enough. Michael, yeah, Michael Lewis, my understanding is he kind of writes about business, but he frequently gives talks that are pretty engaging. But I just love the idea that you know, we could very easily be the unlucky just because of where we were born, where it was safe, where we had food. But these people, we could easily, like I I constantly think to myself, if I were a refugee, I would pray there would be someone that would help me along the way and not give me everything, but, but like enable me to become who I really need to be. You can't become who you're meant to be if you're only focused on survival, you know, like once, once your basic needs are met, then you can, you can like explore your talents and discover who you are. And that's what I love. I see these refugees when they arrive and they're deer in the headlights to transitioning to having those basic needs met. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, I can do so much more. And it's really amazing to watch and then they get back to to our community yeah 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 yeah. so So a lot of these people they've had 
massive trauma. Is part of them coming here? Do we provide some counseling, some trauma therapy? You know, I think we could do a better job, but, you know, our own system um, is broken. Counselors is really, I mean, you know, it takes forever to get in to get help. And there are initial services that are available, but we could certainly do better. And then it's really important that there are therapists that are culturally aware of, you know, what, how do these different cultures view mental health? How do they, you know, and there is just a dearth of people that culturally are culturally appropriate and know these different cultures. I, I love when I see refugees that are, you know, in the social work program up at the U or developing these skills and building awareness. There is an amazing organization called Utah Health and Human Rights, and their major emphasis is to help victims of torture and trauma. Um, and I, it's a work I could never do, <laughs> um, but they're doing amazing work trying to help these refugees that have been through so much um, have better outcomes and understand. And, you know, most of us have little T trauma. These refugees have frequently big T trauma. You know, they've mm-hmm. seen people raped. They've seen people killed in front of them. They've barely survived. You know, they have some serious trauma. And that's, I, I frequently think we're so spoiled in our lives that if we had some of these big, big T traumas, we'd be, I'd be in my closet in a, you know, fetal position and they're still putting one foot in front of the other and they are remarkably resilient. You, I think it's fascinating. There's very few um, instances that I'm aware of, of, of refugees taking their own lives because they just have fought for survival for so long. You know, they just keep going and they're amazing. Like, to me, I don't have, I don't, I, I have this perfect uh, firsthand view of resilience on a daily basis. That's so good. And, That's incredible. Yeah. You know, you just go, okay, you know, I remember one Christmas having asked some teenagers what they'd like for Christmas. A family from Burundi, and you know what the teenage boy said? Toilet paper. And wow. I went home and my kids give me their lists of, digital, you know, yeah. And I'm like, I, I just kind of said, you know, you guys, I just want to let you know, I know Christmas is this beautiful time, but I just had some teenage boys ask me for toilet paper for Christmas. And, you know, it's also a good lesson in prioritizing what's important. Yeah. Um, you know, and, but at the same time, I, if you compliment some refugees from some cultures on, like, what they're wearing, they'll take it off and give it to you. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, it's just really, it's really remarkable. I the generosity see, is amazing. The, yeah. Yeah. The worst in humanity and the best in humanity. I mean, you hear about some of the horrific things that humans can do to other humans, but then I get to see the amazing ways people are giving back to each other and building community and building strength between each other. Well, and, and like you is said, that is, beautiful. that is resilience personified. Oh, 
and yeah, and yeah. to be able to take what they've been dealt that that unluck, and yet keep keep fighting and climbing and and then I love how you pointed out ways that some of us who have been so much more lucky can share little ways as much as we all wish we mm-hmm. could solve all the world's problems. There are things we can do today, and you have given us some great opportunities. And we're grateful that you've joined us and grateful for the work that you've done in truly helping to open our eyes uh, just how fortunate we are and to not just sit back and feel guilty for being fortunate, but hopefully motivated to help those who could use a hand and use some help. And, and of course, how we can learn from those who have so much to teach us. If you want to volunteer and you want to contribute to the Valentine's Day Kids... Um, you have time. Uh, they're taking donations until February 8th. On Wednesday. Yeah, yeah Wednesday. Wednesday, February 8th. And it'll be at the Serve Re- Refugees Share House. And if you go on Facebook to Serve Refugees, all the information is listed there. And yeah. if you are interested in dancing with some young refugees and bringing some snacks so that they can have fun, that event is going to be on February 25th from 5.30 to 7.30. And you can yeah. also so, sign up there. So a couple there. of things. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want people to panic like, oh, I got to do this this week. There are so many opportunities year round. You know, when mm-hmm. we, we start moving into um, the summer, there's a major, amazing World Refugee Day celebration that is awesome to go to. Um, the back-to-school backpacks with school supplies are incredible. We are going to have a cultural night in April and then another one at the Refugee Goat Farm in the summer. Um, so there's, you know, right now you may be overwhelmed or some people are hiding away because it's so snowy and dismal, but there are opportunities year-round to be engaged. And so... You know, don't panic if right now is not the perfect time, but just know there are things all the time. And then I also want to just go back to resilience. So sometimes I think when there are people that have gone through major things, like both of you losing a spouse or, you know, a suicide of a friend or, you know, we all have different traumas in our life. And I think some of the the key things to think about is, we all are going to have opportunities where we're stretched to the limit. And when you're feeling good, you try and give back. And when you're not doing well, you allow other people to help you. Resiliency isn't just being able to tough it through on your own. It's using all of the different tools and people around you. Absolutely. And, being able and to asking ask for help. For help. Mm-hmm. And then also having kind of a a mindset that what can I learn from this, even though it totally sucks, (laughs) what can I learn from this and how can it help me become a better person? How could I use this experience to help others? Um, You know, we didn't even touch on this, but when my, my husband and I had a stillborn that we knew early on, this baby wasn't going to make it. And his way of dealing with it and my way of dealing with it were very different, but neither run was wrong. And that you're going to have different people that deal with the traumas in their life different ways. The important thing is to deal with them healthy in a healthy way. And then 
also um, realizing there's some things that are really out of your control and that part of life is realizing, okay, I climbed this little mountain. There's probably going to be a bigger one next. And then maybe the next one's going to be smaller. Just like Paula said, we're going to, we're going to climb these mountains that Nelson Mandela and, and the hope is that as we gain skills and techniques for the smaller ones, the bigger ones won't knock us over. Or when the bigger ones do knock us over, we can find people that can help us navigate our way. And I feel like that's what we're doing as the established community with refugees. We're helping them navigate their way so these hills become more easily traversed and the mountains become triumphs and that together we come to see each other be successful. I mean, I know from my own life experience, there's nothing that brings me greater joy than seeing someone that's really been knocked down by something, get up on top of that mountain and see the sun cresting and they've made it. And knowing that you've had a part in that journey or someone else has helped you to the same place is probably one of the most rewarding aspects of life. That's amazing. Thank you so much for coming on today, for sharing with us. Um, I learned a ton. I'm super excited to participate in, in in some of the things with the Utah refugee community. So if you like what you've heard from our show today, please subscribe to our Instagram, Facebook, and to our podcast, wherever you get your podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient and on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. Feel free to DM us if you want to share a story with us of your own, uh, a triumph you've had in your life, uh, traversing some difficult roads, and uh, or if you want to nominate somebody to share their story. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can also send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day, everyone. Bye. Thanks. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.